0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to
1: emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and here with me is my own man in the chair, my co-host and best friend, Patrick.
0: Hopefully, I will not break a Death Star Lego set in this episode, but I can't guarantee anything.
1: Better than dying in my arms, that's for sure.
0: This is true. (laughs) This is true. We'll try to
1: avoid both if we can. (laughs) Ideally, for sure, yes. Uh, Well, there's a little that needs to be said to hype this conversation that we're about to have. As Spider-Man No Way Home is dominating the box office this weekend, and movie fans everywhere have been long awaiting this third tom holland mcu entry with its big multiverse spanning surprises i think it is sitting at currently the third biggest opening of all time behind avengers infinity war and avengers endgame that is insane because we are still in a pandemic folks there are like sports games being canceled on the daily for all of the major leagues because so many people have COVID and anyway. Well that's whatever. The thing about movies. I mean, just,
0: yeah. That's the thing about movies is nobody you on You don't the get COVID at movies? No, people on screen are not getting it. <laughs> so it's just like you can watch these guys and you're all like this is fine. This is fine. Yeah. Fingers <laughs> crossed. Yeah.
1: Well I you know that being said, it was definitely a joy to be in a full theater with people. Hopefully no one goes homesick. But without further ado, let's go ahead and get into this. This is our spoiler warning. It's as important as for any movie we've ever covered. If you have not seen this film yet, please go away. Just go away. Cut by. See ya later. Uh, come back later after you're done watching the movie. Patrick has something to say.
0: I was going to say, let's extend the spoiler to previous iterations of Spider-Man from Sam Raimi to Mark Webb. Just saying there might, some, there might be some light spoilers for previous entries of the, the Spider-Man and that they will probably get talked
1: about. That's right. Yeah. So we're talking essentially spoilers for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight movies overall that we will be talking about. (laughs) All the Spider-Man live action goodness coming at you unfiltered. Okay. Well, my friend, it happened. We got what we wanted to get. All three live action universes have become one. And the biggest question that we're going to start with here is just kind of a simple one. And I'm going to get your reaction and then I'm going to get mine. and Then we'll kind of go into more detailed stuff. But I want to talk about this. Did it work for you? Because you got to see it on a Saturday night. That's two nights, roughly 48 hours after it came out. Did anything get spoiled? Were you able to to avoid things? Did you have a full theater? What was your initial reaction like? Just kind of hit me with your experience. Okay.
0: Well, this is one, again, of the few that my wife went, wanted to and did go see with me. We pre-gamed together the first two Tom Holland ones, although I pre-gamed the other Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Spider-Man movies from the Sam Raimi universe and the the Mark Webb universe earlier for the last couple of weeks. This was a prime time showing. We went to go see it, I think it's seven o'clock, which is rare. We usually go in the afternoon so we did have a pretty full theater. My expectations were pretty high, and I made sure to really just kind of mute my entire Twitter feed, because that's the only social media I'm really connected to. I didn't go searching out any kind of reviews, so I I pretty much stayed safe from anything that was going to be spoilery. Now, that being said, when you see in trailers, which I didn't want to, but unfortunately they show up in previews uh, when you're watching another movie you get Green Goblin you get Doc Ock and you're like okay I'm pretty sure we're going to get something else that we didn't see in the trailers I tempered my expectations got into the theater and immediately in the Third or fourth scene when we get a little cameo of my man Daredevil, the audience went nuts. Like we had guys behind us going, Oh my gosh! I mean, just screaming. To a point where I became the crowd for the old man because they kept talking that I did the shh, you know, stop. Because <laughs> I love the excitement. I don't love the dialogue as if you're in your living room having conversations where nobody else is around. But I could totally appreciate. That reaction, and then everything else that happened afterwards, all the big reveals, getting our multiple Spider-Man coming out of the woodwork, it was fantastic, Aaron. And I said, This feels bigger than Endgame. This feels bigger than Infinity War. And with the numbers that are coming in, it doesn't surprise me. I think this is probably, maybe next to, if not more than those, the most anticipated movie in the MCU thus far. For a number of reasons. And my wife asked me, she said, why do you think people wanted to come out and see this movie? And she didn't really compare it to Westhead's story, but she used that sort of as a, as a baseline. Why did this make so much money early on? Why is it bringing in so much? And I said, well, one, it's the MCU, which seemingly can do no wrong. It's like the Alabama of movie companies right now. It doubles down on the fact that Spider-Man is the most popular comic book character ever and I mean that across multiple universes multiple properties bigger than Superman bigger than Batman he is completely profitable at any juncture we get that proof in the fact that we now have a third set of Spider-Man movies to love and enjoy and thirdly people want a big blockbuster to come back to as much as I love West Side Story, it's a niche movie, it's a niche genre, and it's not going to bring in the type of revenue, the type of excitement that Spider-Man is going to do. So I think being in the theater watching this smiling, being the what I would call the, the adult theater goer and kind of pumping my fist in small ways, tearing up when it was appropriate but then also hearing people behind me telling their girlfriends, yeah, he was in the first Spider-Man. Oh, yeah, and he fought him in the second one. You know, these guys giving away this, being proud of knowing this stuff about these previous universes and seeing it all come together was almost like a love letter to the Spider-Man character. Being able to say, look, we respect what came before us. We want to be able to honor that and do it in a way that is also part of great storytelling. And that's what we got, Aaron. That is absolutely what we got. We got great storytelling in a way that made sense, that pushed the overall story along, and also gave us a fantastic conclusion to, I would say, this Tom Holland trilogy. Obviously not the end of Spider-Man or Tom Holland to Spider-Man, but this part three of this singularly directed trilogy and for me the plane landed perfectly for the most part and i'm excited to see kind of what's next after this
1: well good i'm glad you had pretty much the consensus experience that everyone is talking about having (laughs) across the board when it comes to this film its letterbox rating is like through the roof it's four point i don't know it's like it's like parasite high and there's been a lot of discussion in the facebook group about is this a ridiculous notion like is this too high should it be nominated for best picture and of course all of these questions that come out because the ratings are both critically and audience wise are just through the roof so i don't know if we talked about it i don't think we did because i try not to share my reactions to big movies that we're going to cover with you because i don't want to influence you unfairly before you get to go in but I saw it initially on a Tuesday night for the press screening and we recorded our FF Plus spoiler-free episode on it literally that night when we got home. I think we were talking about it till maybe 11.15 and then I had to do the editing. It was rough. And I was at a three. I was at a... This was an okay movie. This was a fine movie. It didn't do a lot for me. I had a bunch of issues that I talked through. I thought it was cool, and it had some strengths, and it had a lot of weaknesses, and I was decidedly underwhelmed and not blown away in any shape or form by the movie. Both Coles and I actually were very similar in that when we talked about it on FF+. Plus. So like I do, I was grateful that I got a chance to go see it again. I had already pre-purchased my IMAX tickets for opening night with my son so I could take him. And I was looking forward to giving it another go. One of my biggest issues with the movie was when we saw it in our press screening, and this has become the norm ever since the pandemic, because Seattle has lost a couple of its best IMAX and big screen theaters. They've either been shut down for COVID or shut down altogether. So we keep getting blockbusters. It's happened with Eternals and The Matrix and Shang-Chi and just all of them, Dune. And we're getting them in a regular theater and i know that sounds like so pretentious to probably some people listening but the reality is that we got them on this normal size movie screen and for me spider-man in particular was very off-putting because there is a lot of close-up photography of faces and the reason is because we're emoting a lot and so they're showing these facial expressions and i understood that but there were faces and torsos taking up a large amount of screen space like the whole thing and it was really frustrating to me from a visual perspective and so i wondered if when i saw this in imax was that ratio going to be better and it was it was so much different the movie looked like a totally different movie to me watching it on an imax screen and i sat in the back row so i had the perfect like full view of this screen and it was a completely different experience but so was the whole thing. I got the same way you did, right? People were cheering at Matt Murdock. People were cheering when the Spider-Man appear. People were cheering at every single villain coming back. And it was just the right amount, Patrick. It, you know, I didn't get the overly obnoxious people in my theater that were screaming out loud for hours on end. I got to notice things, because that stuff doesn't happen at press screening, frankly. I got to notice the little nuance like when Andrew Garfield comes in they actually the director John Watts takes a beat and doesn't say anything and I think that they are anticipating and understanding that there's going to be an audience reaction to this so you can't just put immediate dialogue in that scene like you have to let him pause a second to give the crowd a chance to react and so that was pretty fascinating to me because it happened over and over but got to see that. And it was just such a great blend. It was such an awesome experience. And for me specifically, like having rewatched, I mean, I love all of these movies, but I have them all on 4k. I rewatched all seven of them leading up to this and I I was ready. You know, he's become my favorite hero, just like so much of the world over the last few years. Um, I honestly would say he's probably supplanted Batman. If not, he's right there on an even keel now. And I was blown away. I had quote that experience, and I wrote this letterbox review about it that started off, and the first thing I said was, JK, Belay my last, and I linked my three-star review, right? And then I just launched into this thing about how this happens to me once every couple years, where I see something in a press screening and my passion is so high for this property or this thing, or my excitement, my expectations are through the roof. And It just doesn't work for me for whatever reason. And I'm able to go back, and and I think this is what it is for me, Patrick. I have to sometimes separate the critic who when I'm watching this for press reasons, I'm thinking subconsciously about my likes and my dislikes and my quote to the press rep when I walk out the theater. I'm not necessarily nitpicking, but I'm critiquing as I watch right it's part of the job when I got to watch this a second time I didn't have to do that and it's really weird because I I honestly think the issues that I had with the movie they completely disappeared as if Dr. Strange had forced me to forget them like they, they I really I look at the things I criticized in that first and film plus episode and I would argue with myself <laughs> right now and be like what are you thinking that's not true and here's why so I felt it deeply. I got emotional. I didn't, the first time I saw it, none of that happened. This time I cried, I cheered. I was just over the moon excited about this thing that they'd crafted. And, and I think it's brilliant. I think it is overall just tremendously done. And it's something that could have failed so easily. Could have been such a complete and utter disaster, honestly, and gimmick. And Marvel has shown now repeatedly that they have a respect for these characters. They have a respect for audiences' connection to these characters and their deep intertextuality of their story that is complicated. And it can be too much for some people, but I have found the more and more, like it's, it's unique and so special in a way like I can connect to it, even if I don't need every single detail. So all that said, here we go. Tom Holland's individual Spider-Man movie. So I want to start here because that is what this is supposed to be. (laughs) Now, Tom Holland comes into this universe in the MCU and he's introduced as Spider-Man, not in Spider-Man, his own movie Homecoming, but in Civil War. And then he goes forth and he is not just a part of his own solo movies, But he's got all of these little threads happening because he's part of a team, which I also think is another brilliantly knotted at thing in this movie, No Way Home, and how they talk about that. And they let that be a plot point. The fact that he's been a part of a team. He's unlike the other spider man right? But one of the critiques of his MCU run has often been That he doesn't feel like he has an individual spider-man story quite in the same way that the other spider-men have had because he always has some avenger somewhere (laughs) that's playing a role in these things or stark tech you know helping him out like it's not just him doing things on his own but in this movie we have him dealing with his identity being revealed we have him being you know challenged with the fact that he's now known and infamous and you know considered to be a villain by some we have him having to deal with the loss of a loved one finally as all spider-man have had to do in the past not the same person which i think is brilliant as well and we have him wrestling with a greater good and an idea a moral dilemma that is brought to him of do you kill or do you forgive Do you help? Do you cure? Or do you send back to let fate decide? So with all of these things in play, there's a lot going on. Did this work for you as a Tom Holland movie? As a third entry in Tom Holland's series, does this feel to you like both a natural progression and also a fitting conclusion?
0: It's a soft yes from me, Aaron. And I say that because there was so much emphasis on the multiverse and the potential and eventual reality of seeing the other two Spider-Men come in that by the time it's almost like a hill, like a graph that goes Tom Holland, Tom Holland, Spider-Man, 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 Tom Holland. It's really this idea of it was Tom Holland's movie until Spider-Man, the Spider-Man got there and it was all about them and then it was Tom Holland again. So I will say that yes, for the most part, this feels like a Tom Holland Spider-Man movie, but I think he was upstaged almost too much by the other two and their history. It doesn't mean it didn't work. It absolutely worked. And I feel like overall, what we got was a cohesive Tom Holland story, but it felt a little bit too much like it was about the three in a good way. It didn't feel like Tom Holland was leading the charge in a lot of ways. And part of that has to do with the fact that for better or for worse, he is set up as a team oriented Spider-Man. This is very consistent with the comics. If you read some of the well i'm, I'm only going to take it from a reference point of like the 2000s and the 2010s when i was reading the comic books he was always sort of an understood avenger he was your friendly neighborhood spider-man until he needed to come in and be a part of the avengers he was never part of is that, that court team. <laughs> yeah I think, it is. I think it is but he has always been in the current mcu Excuse me, in the current comics that I was reading several years ago, he was always an addendum to the Avengers. It was the Avengers, oh yeah, and Spider Man, because he's necessary. Most of these stories take place in New York. It's obvious that he needs to be a part of that. And that's where I think Holland's trilogy works really well, because he strives to be an Avenger. He strives to be an Avenger, and then he's an Avenger. And now we're getting this other story about what it means to deal with your own stuff. So in a lot of ways, we see almost a growing up of plot that goes along with the growing up of Peter Parker in these three movies. Homecoming is a lot of fun. I really, really fell in love with Far From Home this time. Felt like it was more cohesive, more balanced. Didn't feel like everyone was a comedian. Really felt from the screenplay, from the sets, from the villain, it felt very much less like a cookie-cutter Marvel movie, and more like a progression. And what I think No Way Home did was take it really up a notch when it came to the drama. So when we start seeing Tom Holland, or excuse me, this Peter Parker, dealing with those things like the death of his Aunt May, the need to want revenge, and the rage that exists, I felt that. But I felt that because I knew about it and was aware of it and was consumed by it, whatever the phrase I'm trying to think of, from the other two iterations. We saw that in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. We saw that in Mark Webb's Spider-Man. And it felt more organic with those two guys. With Tom Holland's Spider-Man, it didn't feel like it was out of left field, but it felt like it was a little bit rushed, like, oh gosh. So something dramatic has to happen, and within two days, you're sort of grieving and trying to figure all this stuff out. and. It didn't diminish those conversations that he was having with toby spider-man and garfield spider-man but it did feel like this is a deep dip of tone for the marvel cinematic universe and that's why i kind of compare it to infinity war and endgame because they were dealing with a lot of heavy stuff only this time we're sort of dealing with this in a pocket of maybe 20 minutes as opposed to Two hours over the or four hours over the course of two years. So for me, I think that it works. But for better or for worse, in my opinion, for better, it was usurped by this big reveal of these other Spider Men and this big multiverse. I think the multiverse was the main character here, not Tom Holland Spider Man.
1: It's interesting because I I would say I agree completely with that when I walked out of it the first night. And I don't agree with it now after, well, I don't disagree, but I I have a different perspective on it, having come out of it a second time. I really believe that the setup is in-depth enough that it is Holland's story. That's how I felt when I was watching it. There's a good long chunk of the movie before the Spider-Man arrive, and While there are multiverse elements in play, because the villains are coming, the plot is driven by his Spider-Man trying to make things work. He's trying to rescue the chances of going to MIT for himself and his friend and his girlfriend. He's trying to combat this national perception that he's a killer and that he's now on everybody's crap list. And he's losing it. He's completely frustrated with these things. And that to me felt very strongly like the driving force of the movie, that he was still somewhat this immature kid who is, as Dr. Strange put it so bluntly to him, he's like, look, you are still living in two worlds. And until you stop trying to do that, it's never going to work for you. You cannot make this work in the way that you think you can. And I felt that strength in the first half of the movie. And then when they do get a, announced or when they do arrive, I should say, to me, it feels very much like they are not necessarily taking the forefront, but it becomes a team-up movie for sure. But I did feel like it was all in service of Holland's Spider Man. And it boy, this is hard to talk about sometimes because you gotta be like, it's easier just to say Holland than it is Spider-Man or Peter Parker, or else we're gonna be doing what they do in the movie when they're like Peter and they all look Peter Parker. Right. Yeah, it's very confusing. Still still the same, Ned. Right. Still the same. <laughs> the computer, the computer. You know, but um <laughs> I love that scene. But um but I but I really feel like I g- desperately got that they were here to help him. And it was his story that mattered and, and that they got some moments for themselves along the way, but everything that they did was to help him become better and for his story to kind of come full circle. So it did work for me as a true continuation of his individual Spidey story. And I, I think it really worked out quite well, actually, and felt pretty consistent with the MCU Spider-Man we've had. I came to really just love it. And even more so than I think when I went into this movie, I love them all. I love them all for individual reasons. And I don't need to qualify that and tell you why I love one more than the other. And I don't need to tell you their strengths and their weaknesses, because I think that they both overwhelmingly have strengths and that they are vastly different depictions of this character. But yet they're all so similar in what matters the most about why we love him right right i i did want to talk about aunt may specifically because this was a big moment right and you and i have talked about this in the past and i think fans everywhere have wondered where's uncle ben in this universe now i know that in far from home that he peter picks up some luggage and i think it has uncle ben's initials on it so we should we kind of presume uncle ben existed at some point either he's left aunt may (laughs) or she's a widow um whatever may have happened we don't know any specifics but i personally was caught completely off guard by this patrick i was not expecting an aunt may death and i certainly was not expecting it to be used in the way that it was to deliver the iconic line and to trigger this great dilemma in tom holland which then he needs the help of these other two Spider-Men who have gone through that to change and deal with. Um, Did this main kind of plot device work for you?
0: Yes. And I will say it impacted me more than Infinity War having half of the population, including Spider-Man, turn to dust. You know why? Because Endgame was coming and we knew that. And we knew that there was a Spider-Man movie coming after Endgame. So, poo on you, Disney, for giving us too much information and for giving us trailers. I think that knowing the future really hindered something like Endgame and Infinity War's stakes. Now, I won't go back and say there were no stakes in Infinity War. There were. That same feeling was what I got when Aunt May died. Because it was unexpected and because there's no going back. In the comic books, one of the rules that you do not break in Marvel comics is you do not bring Ben back from the dead. In the MCU, I think that rule is going to stay there for Aunt May. Aunt May is dead, she is not coming back. You cannot retroactively make her come back. It is wrong. It is quintessentially going to go against Spider-Man's story if you do that because this movie decided that that was going to be the linchpin and to go back and say oh it didn't happen is almost like comic book sacrilege on the movie screen so when this happened aaron i was like what 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 and i heard gasps behind me of people going no not him i mean people were whispering thank you for whispering but they were reacting But I can almost sense them covering their mouths and saying, that can't be. No, Aunt May doesn't die. But in this universe, she does. And it's not because Uncle Ben wasn't there to die. I'd like to think that, yes, Uncle Ben does exist. But because she doesn't mention his death or mourning that. Because Peter Parker never mentions him dying. We now know, or we can assume, that he died... From something that wasn't tragic, it was either natural causes. He wasn't murdered. He wasn't killed in the car crash. That he existed and now he doesn't, but he's not the major player in Peter's life. It's Aunt May, and that makes a whole lot of sense because Aunt May has always been an anchor for Peter. So having her death happen deepens that. It almost like it's almost like it puts Uncle Ben's death that existed in the other two spider-man universes inside her so her death is the same as uncle ben's but you also get her influential life in peter's life that we get from the other two so aunt may in the toby Maguire verse in the garfield verse was influential but she didn't die now you almost get this double impact of the influence of an uncle ben and Aunt May, and the and this death, all kind of wrapped up into one, and so it was really meaningful, and I think that that's necessary, because we need Tom Holland Spider Man to have rage, to have grief, because up to now he's only been in fear, he's only been in danger, <laughs> is what superheroes are, but like any good character, like any good depth of a character. He's probably the only one in the MCU that hasn't gone through that until now the loss of a loved one. He's dealt with the fear of losing someone. But the fact is, the one person in his life that mattered the most is the one that needed to have her life taken away to move him along. And I think that that's brilliant. And I think it establishes. If, ha- if it hasn't already, I think it establishes his Spider-Man as the MCU Spider-Man. Not that I was thinking, oh no, Toby's better or Garfield's better. We already had a lot of differentiation, like you said, but what about? And I think that's a question that a lot of people have said, what about Uncle Ben? I mean, did he never mentions him, but now we have the what about. Aunt May is that what about? And now he has that anchor that we can then use that as a signpost to say that was a turning point for him. That was a turning point for Peter to make the decision that he made to go ahead and have the world forget him. I think if Aunt May had not died, he would not have made that decision. And I think that's an obvious observation. I think that's what Watts wanted us to get. But at the same time, I think that's a huge differentiation in his origin story in his character development that is different from Toby and from Garfield, which I think just makes it that much more beautiful because now we have even more of a distinction and we can love each one of them for those distinctions. But right now, Tom Holland and his Spider-Man world is what we're living in. So let's continue to enjoy that.
1: Yeah, that would have been pretty weird if he had to have his aunt forget him like of all people. Um, Right, yeah. So he's lost Tony Stark. I think for me, that's the thing that actually, not in his trilogy, of course, but I think that that for me is what made this extra shocking, is that he's experienced a loss. And so up until now, I think fans have really kind of one for one to Uncle Ben with Tony Stark as the mentor for Peter Parker. And therefore you don't see it coming. You don't expect him to get another one right? Like, he's already gone through something once. Like, why would he have to do it again? And what is also interesting is that the first couple movies, Aunt May is drastically underused in the opinion of some fans. Now, I personally don't have a problem with it. I don't think all the stories have to be told the exact same way. She's got her moments. She's part of his life. She's in his orbit, but she's never had an impact in the way that Uncle Ben always is shown to have some sort of moment where he really lays out that elderly advice or you know fatherly kind of a conversation that he has with peter before his death in the previous films which helps establish when peter loses him how hard that is for him and here we have it happening to someone who's not elderly in any sense. She's young and she had not had those moments, but she gets those moments. And I love, love, love it. So I, I don't know if Feast has been in the MCU previously. I think it might've been. This movie is really starting to tie into the series, which I think is amazing and awesome because we've got Matt Murdock. You mentioned the, the Daredevil cameo, which was sick. Don't get me wrong. Like, that, <laughs> I'm a really good lawyer. I just, I love that line. It was so good. And so perfectly like small, right? It's just, here you go. He's here. And for viewers of Hawkeye, you'll know that this is not the only part of the Netflix series that are being tied in to this whole universe. And it's being done so brilliantly, but we get feast. And for me, like that is such a big, Part of the new Aunt May that I know from the video game series. She runs this organization, and it's such a big pet. And we get Peter going there. like that's where he gets to meet Norman Osborne. And this whole thing is Aunt May's moral mission. It's not necessarily Uncle Ben just spouting advice. It's Aunt May living a life of servitude and of forgiveness and caring for the lesser than and the downtrodden in New York City she is essentially a spider-man without superpowers she is helping people that is what she does it's what she is passionate about so of course when these villains come in he has the option of sending them back to their fate which as they all tell their stories essentially is going to lead to their deaths in their own universe or trying to cure them and using the wonderful line from our favorite guy mark watney and the martian they're gonna science the shit out of this because they're peter parker which is awesome then it's it puts that mission on him and and i think it's so neat to see that because peter has been that guy he's always wanted to redeem the villain he did it with vulture he saved him in the end right he did it with mysterio he tried he wanted to, and it's like you see a guy who's getting beat down, beat down, beat down. Like at some point, you're gonna give up. And so her death is such an important catalyst for creating that rage in him that I think is so realistic, and I think that any normal human being would deal with. And it, and it's such a dramatic device that it is great for propelling this. I think I expected so much less, Patrick. I expected cameos from Toby Maguire and Andrew Garfield and I thought that they would come in they would throw a couple quips here and there and it, it would not be anywhere near this in depth their involvement in his life and in his literal like growth as a human being and as a superhero. And so this death gives him the opportunity to really do that so far beyond just coming in through a portal and helping him catch some of their old villains because they've done it before. I, I thought it was brilliant but it, so i, I guess talk, i was gonna say we should talk about the villains let's talk about the spider man maybe we just talk about them together i'll just throw that out to you like in general we get the villains back we get the spider man back as well well uh, let's talk about the villains first let's talk about the villains first. <laughs> we get the villains back we kind of knew they were coming because that part of marketing was impossible to avoid but we weren't 100% sure how much or whether Toby and Andrew were going to be in the movie, of course. So we get Doc Ock, we get the lizard, we get Sandman, we get Electro, and we get Green Goblin. We get five old Spider-Man villains that come back. How did they go for you on an individual basis? And, and how did you like the way in which their stories get handled in this movie well i think that
0: the issue that myself and probably a number of other people have with spider-man 3 and the amazing spider-man part 2 is that word bloated there's too much going on too many villains too much happening too many subplots and wow watts just says let me just show you how I can do this. Let me show you how it's done. We've seen it happen before. Now let me show you the right way. This is how I felt when I left. I was like, okay, this is how you handle five villains at once. And I say that quite literally because there were five villains being fought. Well, four and then Norman at the end. But at one point you had four villains being fought with at the same time. Oh my gosh, crazy, right? Right. And then for me, I I think that bringing in these villains was more than anything set up. I didn't feel strongly about any one of them. I thought they were all great. I'm always going to say that Sam Raimi's villains are more interesting than Webb's, even though I prefer Webb's spider-man to the other two if i'm gonna rank i know we don't do that or we can but in any case i'm always going to lean towards my garfield spider-man but the fact is norman osborne and otto octavius are are really more compelling characters than any of the others for me because of how raimi fleshed them out there's a reason why spider-man 2 is so good and part of it is because of the performance of Otto Octavius and his relationship with Peter. That's always going to be great. And I think that's played out pretty effectively in The Amazing Spider-Man with Dr. Connors and Peter in a more subdued way. So I think his involvement or his being brought in, I wanted to see Connors as Connors not as Lizard. I didn't really care for Lizard's look. I thought it was just, I don't know. It was just kind of weird looking to me. And then Sandman, I didn't love him in Spider-Man three. So bringing him in and bringing electro in from amazing two were fine, but I see why because of the fact that all of these villains were connected to Peter Parker in some way, shape or form. And there was a, direct connection these guys were not out and about trying to destroy the universe necessarily these were neighborhood villains and so to bring them in i thought was a really smart idea to start with octavius and then bring in osborne because i think watts knows who the favorites are spider-man 2 spider-man 1 that kind of thing And so bringing these guys in, in the, in the way that he does, I think allows us to cheer, allows us to get that kind of nostalgic feeling and then really settle in on what are we going to get here? What is Octavius's problem going to be? What's Norman's problem going to be? And it honestly, it's all familiarity. It's really like, okay, we're going to go off of the assumption that they were pulled before their issue got resolved. Before Osborne died, before Octavius got deinhibited, before Connors got reverted back to his old self, so I think what we have here is essentially a what if story from from the beginning. Like, what if this happened? And that's what was really appealing to me, because what it allowed us to do was have some fun with Holland Spider Man in not only. Seeing these villains for the first time going, What in the world? But understanding by gaining context of why they're upset with him. Not him, but Peter Parker. Wait, not Peter Parker, but <laughs> that kind of thing. So you have these villains who have an issue with a version of Peter Parker, and he's like, That's not me. But he's compelled to eventually want to help them because that's who Spider Man is. Again, a common trait with all three of these Spider Men is the desire to redeem those that they care about and so bringing them in i thought was a really great move we had mysterio from the from the second one so to bring in a third spider-man movie and just introduce yet another villain that we haven't seen yet i thought would be kind of a weak way of finishing off tom How- tom holland's trilogy so I think that the villains themselves are fun, compelling, not necessarily as compelling as they are in their original universes, but I don't think they're meant to be either. I think they're meant to be a conduit to get Holland's Spider-Man from point A to point B, as well as bringing in that nostalgia, as well as bringing in some redemptive value for toby Maguire's spider-man as well as andrew garfield spider-man so overall i really enjoyed them i wouldn't have wanted a new villain because i didn't want to get used to someone new would have trusted watts to do that but was glad we got the villains that we did
1: yeah i think i didn't want anything new either if we were doing this storyline and i think that it's less about the villains individually and their reaction or interactions with Tom Holland, Spider-Man, as it is, what you just said at the end, it's it's all a package deal. And that's what's beautiful about this movie to me, and why I think it is so phenomenal and so special, is that everything is reliant upon everything else. It's all in service of each other. The villains present some interesting moments. Like you said, when Doc Ock he knows where the fans lie. That that bridge scene is just outstanding. To go from doc ock and the whole why are you here and who are you and why do you know me and why are you mad to him being frustrated because he's trying to impress this lady from mit at the same time and he's wearing a suit underneath and he's he's just so it's so spider-man right and then to have that him finally solve that with a piece of sark tech which was an awesome solution the fact that he was able to use his nanotech to take that over i love the constant interplay of the villains being like, oh, you have magic in this world? Oh, you have, you know, neater tech in this world? And also the Spider-Man, like, them all understanding they lived in different, quote, technologically advanced universes. Like, some of them don't have the Avengers or don't know about them. And so you get that stuff, but that bridge scene really kicks it all off. And then you get the goblin coming in as well, all in that one moment. I thought it was a strength not to have him fight Lizard because he's the least compelling on an individual level, probably, of all of them. So there's no just 1v1 against Lizard. He's just kind of, he got captured, you know, unbeknownst to us, Doctor Strange collected him. And we don't have to worry about that until the big Statue of Liberty moment where he pops in briefly, but I think that that worked out well, too. And I really liked the scene with Electro and with Sandman and him having no idea what was going on. And it made sense. I wondered how it was going to make sense. Jamie Foxx was talking about in his interviews, like, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to be blue anymore. And while he didn't specifically go into some detail about why his body looks the way it does, the fact that he's in a universe with this new power And his desire when he learns about the arc reactor is, wow, that's unbelievable. Like that all makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't you want that if you were an electric guy, right? Who was all about conducting this power. You'd want the most powerful source that you could have. And the way that they bring them in like that and they they go and they try to fix them, both initially with Holland trying to do so, so cool all the different like ways in which he crafts these scientific inventions the chip that goes on the back of Doc Ock's neck it looks exactly like the one with the little like plunger pieces that come down needles that drop in the, the reactor idea that he puts on electro and you can see it kind of you can watch his face as he's like I don't know about like this is about to think, think about to take my power away it felt so much like a Spider-Man story to me. It felt so much like a comic book. And ultimately, getting the other Spider-Men there is what makes it even better because now you get to have these redemption moments, these things that wouldn't have necessarily even made sense in their own movies, but somehow it's awesome to see it after the fact. As I think you said it perfectly, Patrick, a what-if story a you already what if stories work because you know a different version if that makes sense like you can't have a what if of something that didn't happen it's only a what if if it's different than a thing you've already seen and know and are familiar with and so when we get these guys coming in and they're like you know, i've already made this you know serum for dr connor's once i can do it again and toby's like well i got I got this one for Goblin and, and you know, and Holland's like, well, I can do this because they have this certain technology. You get to see all of their strengths and all of the, I mean, when they were working in that lab together, it just, it was warming my heart. I was in so much love watching the three of them be Peter Parkers together like that. It was just really unique and special. And they all get to have those moments with the different villains, right? And so you're able to, make Flint back into a human. So he can go home and see his daughter again. You know, you're able to do the same thing, essentially with Connors. You're able to take Electro's power away and make him max again. And you're able to, and you can't think about like the ramifications of this, because if you do, it will break your brain. If you start worrying about too much, start thinking about like, well, if they were to poof back at the exact moment that they poofed away, then they would still die cuz then they would be powerless
0: <laughs> i i have a i have a theory
1: about that though
0: so no, well, i want to hear it my theory is that the spell to send them back was essentially broken when goblin destroyed the box was it goblin that destroyed the box yes so the new spell that allowed the whole world peter uh the Holland world, (laughs) to forget that he's Spider-Man, that spell, my theory is that it sent them back to their own universes, but it put them in different moments in time. And some of that, again, is going to be brain-breaking because then you have to wonder, okay, we have an older Spider-Man in the form of Tobey Maguire, and he indicates as such, which I think is a brilliant thing that Watts did was to acknowledge the obvious he's not toby maguire from 2002 he's toby maguire living in 2021 in the tobyverse and it hints at that he's got this interesting relationship with mj right but that it's complicated and that it's a hard thing to deal with
1: so and that garfield has never forgiven himself and he's been yes. living in this emo state of rage he specifically says he's like i stop pulling my punches Right. So he knows what Holland is about to go through.
0: So we have to take the Doctor Strange is all powerful and knows everything kind of approach. And my theory is that because we're probably not we, we didn't get any mid-credits or in-credit scenes showing Toby and Garfield in their respective universes doing something, we have to go off the assumption or off the idea that Doctor Strange sent all of the villains back to moments in time that were either after their conversion, or it, it's almost like this alternate 1985, he sent them to a new version of their universe in which their redemptiveness, their redemption is still intact. And so Sandman is with his, you know, Flint is still with his, is with his daughter now. And Connors is not in prison, but he's actually in his lab. I can't tell. I couldn't tell from my viewing if he had his arm, like if his arm was fully back or if he had still lost it. But the interesting thing for me, Aaron, is
1: what happens with Oscorp,
0: Norman Osborn and
1: It doesn't exist in the future. That was interesting.
0: No, no, no. Well, it doesn't exist in the the, MCU. Or
1: new, modern, yeah, whatever you want to call it. It doesn't exist
0: in the MCU. That was what was interesting to me. I never thought about the fact that Oscorp does not exist
1: in the MCU. Yeah.
0: And so what does that mean for Tobey Maguire's universe where Oscorp does exist, where Norman Osborn is alive, where Doc Ock still has his tentacles, but he is not insane, Do they now work together? What happens there? And I think that ideas like that can be thought of without necessarily saying, well, that just totally screws up continuity with these other universes. That's not the point of this movie. And I don't think Watts is completely saying, well, just forget about it. I mean, those things don't exist. They're not, they're not, well, they do exist, but they're not important. No, they are important as well, but they're not important enough to say, okay, is Toby or Toby and Andrew going to show up again? krisha actually asked me about this. She said, "Do you think they're going to come back?" I said, "No, they're not." I think this movie doubled as a conclusion to the first set of Holland Spider-Man movies and also as a redemptive conclusion to the incompleteness or the dissatisfaction that fans had with the way Spider-Man 3 ended and the way Amazing 2 ended. Either by not getting a third entry for Amazing, or by feeling like Spider-Man 3 was a jumbled up mess. And I think that when we think about what is going on in these other universes, Doctor Strange has essentially done his Doctor Strangeness and has put them in places where they know what's going on. Peter, of both of those two universes, is aware of them, they're aware of him and now instead of being like part of his rogues gallery Garfield Spider-Man is going to pull his punches and he's going to continue to work with Connors I believe Doc Ock and Norman Osborn are going to work together and they're going to develop even greater technology together and Toby Maguire's Spider-Man is going to assist in that regard so there's endless possibilities But I think what this movie sets up in our minds through Doctor Strange being able to pretty much do anything and see endless possibilities is the fact that we can believe that in spite of the fact that they came in at weird times and something happened before something else, they're going back knowing that their future is unwritten. It's the back to the future moment where their future hasn't been written. No one's has. What we do know is that Gwen Stacy is still dead. What we do know is that Ben Parker is still dead. Because of the fact that we get that wonder, you know, my favorite Garfield moment in the film, where he cries after he rescues MJ and I start crying. And I'm like, I'm not oh, yes. crying. You're crying. Let me, just, let me just give you a hug, please. And I think that having that and not necessarily needing to revisit it allows us to feel like we get to finish their stories and believe that they're all in better places both as not as heroes and villains but as characters in their respective universes
1: yeah so well said absolutely Uh, i agree and i love that i mean that moment for me is easily you know top two or three of the whole movie just and the way the way it's composed and i think this about the whole film i think the whole film is just brilliantly constructed the way we have mj fall in the exact same shot for shot look that stacy was falling from and peter j- diving down peter tom Holland, Peter diving down after her to save her because he's her girl in the same way that garfield would have done and him being knocked off course because you get first you get the oh my god she's falling and it's just like when stacy and then you get the second oh my god no he got knocked off like he's not gonna get her and then you get the garfield jump it's it's just a beautiful beautiful moment of drama and Go ahead. the way in which garfield goes down and catches her and tucks and rolls scoops her to protect her versus using his webbing these are the details and the nuance that make this movie so special i think it's that right and for toby Maguire. And his moment, like, when he steps between Holland and Goblin and Osborn, he is blocking the glider from killing Osborn. The glider is the same way that killed, it; wouldn't, didn't come from Holland, but that is exactly how Osborn dies in his universe, is the glider itself is what impales him. And here he is putting himself directly in the middle of that moment instead of being out of the way in which is because that's what happens is he flips over it and the glider goes through and kills Osborne, And now he is re- redeeming himself by staying in place between him and saving him, which is just, it, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal storytelling. And and it's so beautiful for those guys. And yeah, one of my biggest what ifs is his universe, right? Doc Ock is literally become a hero in this movie. So what is is Spider-Man gonna retire is he gonna work with Doc Ock? Does I, I mean, I want that. I hope if we're lucky, there'll be like a second season of What If next year from Marvel and we'll get some sort of like animated look at the Toby Maguire verse where Doc Ock is a hero now cuz he's good. He's well, and, powerful, but he's good. And Toby is older. I mean, Toby's, he's older?
0: Yeah, he's. So think of think
1: about this. back-crunched.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. So think about the fact Such a that the to- <laughs> fact is so good. I I love their They're bantered
1: together, dude. Oh, and they just slipped back into it like it hadn't missed a beat.
0: That's something else that's interesting. And I'm going to go back to, to what you talked about. But I want to segue for just a second about that. Because I think in each iteration of Spider-Man that we have talked about offline or online or any line is the fact that how do you deal with the quippiness of Spider-Man? Because that's what he's known for. He's known for those really just fun, sarcastic quips back and forth. How do you vocalize that? And I think we, when we covered Homecoming, we talked a little bit about does Holland nail it? And I think he does. I think he is a great balance of Peter Parker and, and Spider-Man. And the way in which he talks to his enemies. The way he goes back and forth with the banter. What we get to see on display there, Aaron, is we get to see how Toby Maguire's banter looks in comparison to Tom Holland, in comparison to Andrew Garfield. And they're so distinct. They're very different in the way in which they deliver lines. Like the way when they start the big fight at the Statue of Liberty, just before they decide, hey, we need to team up. This doesn't work if we are all going after our own individual villains. Garfield says something really funny to uh, to Connors. And he says, hey man, long time no see, missed you. You know, that kind of thing. Which is very much hearing Garfield say that line. I was like, oh yeah, that's that's the Amazing Spider-Man banter that I like. The Amazing Sarcasm. Yeah, the amazing, the amazing Sarcasm, that's funny. No, I meant Amazing Spider-Man sarcasm that we like. And Tom Holland's Spider-Man voice is distinctly different than Tobey Maguire, So we get to see... All three of those on on full display. Now, just going back to address what you were saying, because Peter Parker has gotten older, I would like to believe that in my world, my in my mind of this new world, he's retiring. Spider-Man is no longer in existence. And now Doc Ock, he's assisting Doc Ock in a way that is appropriate. They're using science to solve the world's problems. In the same way that May is using Feast to live out her mission, her ideology. I think that that's something that we could say as an alternative, that Doc Ock is now a hero. How does Peter fit into that? Well, I think Peter now lives a quiet life with his girl MJ, and he is a well-known scientist now, as opposed to your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Could the world live without Spider-Man? I wouldn't like to think of a world that didn't live without Spider-Man, but alas. Maybe it's now Doc Ock, who is the new friendly neighborhood octopus. Octopus. (laughs) Hey, it's an animal. It's true. It's true.
1: Well, MJ and Ned. So they're the MJ, Ned, and Doctor Strange. Let's talk about how you how we felt about these characters. And I'll say this: so these characters have some enhanced roles in this movie in different ways. Obviously, Strange is playing a specific part in which he's breaking the multiverse for Holland's Peter Parker and ultimately going to be setting up this next Doctor Strange film and connecting in ways to WandaVision, yada, yada, yada. So, of course, there's always going to be this intertextuality to everything that happens in this world, which is part of what makes it so fascinating. But within the context of his reason for being in the story and what he does, I was nervous about it. I'll tell you, I actually really loved it. Second viewing especially. I'm not a Doctor Strange guy. I think that his solo movie is one of my least favorites of the MCU. Acknowledging that I enjoy them all on some level. But not my favorite by any means. I actually thought he played a lot better for me the second time around. A lot more genuine. Made a lot more sense and felt better the way that things were going. Peter Parker going to him as a kid and being like, help. I just need help. Like I know you've done this before. Like why wouldn't I ask you to do it for me? I'm selfish. You know, I just want my friends and my girlfriend and myself to like be able to do our thing for once and I'm getting tired of it. And for him to be compelled to want to help because of what Peter's gone through. And then we have MJ and we have Ned. And MJ is a little more involved, but specifically Ned. Ned is magic, which is weird and really confuses me, and it's one of those things that I can't seem to find any details on yet, but I feel like it must have MCU implications down the road somehow. I'm really, really curious what's going to play out here, or if it was just a one-off, because there is a shot during the scene at Ned's house with his Lola, which is hilarious when the Spider-Mans arrive, especially Garfield, and he's like, i'm here i don't need to crawl like i'm good I, it, this is enough this is plenty this froze it and he's like let me go get the cobweb are you happy now and but anyway there's a shot during that scene of some family heirlooms on the wall that are kind of look like old ancient artifacts that speak to maybe ned's magic and his family history it's got one of those things that i love marvel does they put these things in there that make me cute very curious he gets to play a bigger role in this movie. He has an active part and MJ as well in both their decision-making. Like they have agency. They could push this button at any time and they choose not to. And they choose to engage Peter and, you know, support him. So did you have any issues with the way these three characters played into the story or did they feel like they fit into their roles pretty well?
0: No, I think they fit in really well. In fact, I think that It's fun to see Zendaya as MJ really evolve over the last three movies. She looks more mature. She looks older. She looks like the way that her hair is done, the way that she talks. If you watch her in Homecoming, she's a lot of fun to watch because she's just like half eyes open, doesn't really care, makes snarky comments. But by the time we get to this movie, Her role is more significant because of her connection to Peter. But the way in which they both do science, the way in which they both figure things out, it didn't feel like it came out of left field. And it's kind of that Stranger Things type of vibe or that Ghostbusters afterlife where you have set these characters up to be smart. And by the time they do smart things, it doesn't feel unbelievable because they're just kids. Like These are 17-year-olds. These are kids that are going to MIT. They're young adults. I mean, they're getting ready to do some amazing things in terms of education and science. So watching them do what they do, it really does have a great balance of hinting at not really a coming-of-age story, but coming-of-age moments where Both Ned and MJ are saying less sarcastic things or are getting us our laughs for the movie and really do feel like they're Holland's team, like they're Spider-Man's team. Ned is the guy in the chair. I would trust him with my tech. I would trust him with being my eyes. There was a really fun moment when Peter is having to kind of re- Create his suit and he puts that cell phone on his chest so that they could see when he goes out to that farm or that field and he finds electro. I love that. I love the fact that they're using any technology they can find. In this case, it's just a cell phone to be his eyes and ears because he needs them. So watching their roles sort of get bigger didn't feel like it was dramatic. It was kind of pushed forward in Far From Home, where by the time we get to No Way Home, the things that they do don't feel nearly as absurd as they would maybe after homecoming or even during homecoming because these are just high school kids, high school kids just trying to get through and not get beat up and not feel like they're the awkward folks. These are legitimate folks that are changing the world quite literally, or the multiverse in this case, Dr. Strange. He has been very consistent in his bit parts in other movies. I confess I have not seen the Doctor Strange movie is it just one or are there two? Just one. There's okay.
1: one. The second one's coming.
0: Right. Okay. Next. So because I'm not a because I'm not a Doctor Strange guy, each time I watch a movie with him in it, it makes me want to go back and watch his origin story because I just think he's lots of fun, and even his look in this being the guy coming out with a cape but wearing his what Princeton or Columbia sweatshirt and. And sweatpants, I I leaned over to Chris and said, dude's wearing sweatpants. Are you kidding me with this? This is hilarious. And so I think his part was appropriate enough compared to the things that I've seen him in already. So, yeah, I think he was good.
1: Yeah, you should check it out, especially if you like the fight scene, which I wanted to ask you if there's anything that stood out to you. But there was the the fight scene between he and Peter where they're in the mirror dimension and it it has a serious like Inception vibe and things are. Yes. So there's a huge one of those longer in the Doctor Strange movie. Okay. Legitimately in on IMAX was like, it's the coolest thing you've seen since Inception. Like it's one of the best parts of Doctor Strange movies. So <laughs> well,
0: that is definitely I, my favorite fight scene. Check of that the out. Entire that. Movie. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's definitely my favorite. I know that we haven't really started talking about those things just yet, but that's definitely my favorite. And I think it's because of the fact that it looks amazing that... The dialogue is just spot on good. And the fact that Peter has this revelation of. I have the power of math and I'm going to use my geometry as opposed to all this crazy magic that you're trying to spin with your hands and arms and whatnot. I'm going to take you down. But the way it starts is pretty fantastic. where He essentially makes Peter a ghost and he's like, am I dead? it's like no you're not dead you're that, just, just that, a...
1: that happens to him in his movie that's where that okay. comes from is okay. that that's done to him as a starting point and peter's not supposed to be able to move that thing around it's a the only thing i can think of is like peter tingle like it, it has something to do with his like innate subconsciousness yeah is... i
0: I, ask, I kind of attribute not attribute it, but i compare it to like the flash and being connected Ah, to the speed speed force, you know, having this, you know, it's not speed, whatever it's
1: my bad. So sorry, flash guy, didn't mean to insult your superhero
0: (laughs) next year, you're gonna you're gonna watch what you say, okay? I'm assuming you're going to watch what you say (laughs) actually happens. So when I sit down, I'm just saying this guys on the record, when I sit down in my theater and I see the opening credits, that's when I'll believe we have a a flash movie. Okay. (laughs) But yeah, I I, I think that watching that whole sequence play out, it's just beautifully done. And I think it's one of those where I don't like a lot of CG in my movies. that's one of the reasons I love the amazing Spider-Man is there's a lot of practical effects, but when you do things like that, and you do them with purpose. You do them for fun. You, you have this multi-layer reasoning for why you do what you do in terms of this kind of, of fight or this kind of scene. It's really amazing. It really, really is. It was fun to watch, fun to listen to. And it's always nice to see someone like Doctor Strange who feels like he has all the power just get cut down to size and by your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man at that. So very cool.
1: Yeah, so that one was pretty awesome, I have to admit. I always love seeing anything happen within the portals. Like, there's the scene that reminds me of the video game portal when he's going back and up and, like, vertically falling through it infinitely. I love the one where he whips him and has his leg going through one portal and a whip coming through another one during that fight. I, I thought that the bridge fight was awesome. Doc Ock just looks amazing in this movie and i love the look of the electro fight Electro's kind of a small part when he comes into screen but there's just something that reminded me of a boss fight i think it's the final boss fight actually in marvel's spider-man i hope it's marvel spider-man and not miles morales and you're like gonna be like oh you're spoiling it but <laughs> there is definitely a fight in the spider-man game one of them where he's fighting this boss in the sky and it is very reminiscent of the way that electro is like whipping him around with the electric power it's spider-man it's
0: spider-man yeah. I remember, because he's fighting him i think and one other villain but i can't remember
1: exactly yeah. yeah and so it just had that t- sort of cinematic video game feel to it basically all of the whole sequence on the statue of liberty was pretty awesome i thought but yeah, it was just it was it was really good. It was really confined and really interesting and didn't they didn't over-action it. You know, it's funny because there's a lot of non-action in the movie for the most part compared to what you might expect with a movie with this many villains. I thought it was really, really solid balance for being nearly two and a half hours long. And I enjoyed it quite a bit. And moment wise, just within the battle sequences. Everything about the 3 Spider-Man is just phenomenal but you know like when Toby tells Andrew when Andrew's like oh you know sometimes i just doubt myself he's like no you're you're amazing no, you you are amazing you need to say it with you. you are amazing i just i was dying and i mean i'm a self proclaimed Andrew lover like i yes. think that the amazing spider-man movies are both phenomenal i know you agree with me wholeheartedly on number 1 we've done podcasts on both of them we are fans of both movies and we think that they're good. They're really good. And so just, just I don't know. I just love that it's both meaningful from a character to character moment, but it's also very meta in general for fans. So well done. But when they go up on that statue of Liberty together and when they, that one sequence where they decide that they've got to work as a team they're like, guys, this isn't working. We've got to do it together. And they jump off all at once. I think it's Garfield. And he whips them both. And like connects to both of them with webs and swings them around. It is, it's phenomenal. And then, of course, they all do the boom, 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 one, two, three, superhero Spider-Man landing. And it's just like, I, I mean, I don't know how you don't just you're choked up like it's amazing it is one. it's yeah. to me patrick that moment was cooler than captain america picking up thor's hammer like yeah. i know that people went nuts and screamed at that but for me those three guys together like that in that moment it was perfect and all the well, three different suits and lives yeah. and everything coming together
0: well and people went nuts when they saw that like when yes, they both landed they in in different ways, it wasn't like they all landed the same way. It was three distinctly different Spider Man superhero poses that we've gotten used to. And Krisha asked me. She said, "Is that their thing? Like, is that Garfield's thing?" I said, "No, no, it's not. It's it's a Spider Man thing. Spider Man has multiple ways that we are familiar with him landing. Whether he is with his back, feet, you know, his feet, his back feet, like he's a cat, with his feet landing and his hand right in front of him." Like he's getting ready to tackle somebody or the other two, it's distinctly Spider-Man. And so to see all three of them happen, that moment I think was very much metaphorically Watts saying, all these guys matter. All the universes matter. They're all valuable. And we recognize that. You would not be able to have this moment with Tom Holland if Sam Raimi hadn't done his thing Mark Webb hadn't done his thing, so thank you. I think that moment was it's a thank beautiful. you. Yeah, I agree. And and it was just great to see, uh, and and great to hear the audience just go
1: completely, a, you know, yes. nuts, <laughs> crazy, happy, yes. excited, happy. Yeah. The the other moments like the joke about the youth pastor, I know hit for us. Big time. Your wife like Chris's Chris's
0: favorite line in the entire movie. She said, that's the one line I'm going to remember. Said, so yep, hilarious. So, so
1: applicable. Cool. The ongoing fascination by Andrew specifically with Toby's web fluid and every bit of dialogue surrounding that. And, and Tom all being like, does it like come in out of anywhere else? Yeah, just, <laughs> just, just
0: my arms. Just
1: my and arms. And they're both like, so you don't have to like, just every bit of dialogue. Man. I just, I love it. Tom's well, like. Andrew's like, I have to make mine in a lab.
0: (laughs) And and, and again, that's so funny to say that because I was one of the things. I hadn't thought about
1: it until they talked about it, honestly.
0: But that's something I did think about. I was like, how come in this version of Spider-Man, it's organic, but it's made. And you make the argument because in Tom Holland and Garfield's Spider-Man, the directors and writers decided, you know what? We're going to lean more into the science of things as opposed to toby mcguire who's just kind of a goofy yeah he he likes science he's he's a smart guy but he never comes across that way where chris was even asking me did that not affect them the same way and i said no it doesn't but it's not inconsistent with spider-man because in spider-man's origin story that's been told multiple times both of those phenomenons exist his powers manifest themselves in different ways in the same way That the ultimate universe that introduces Miles Morales as Spider-Man, it's still a spider bite. In all those instances, it's a spider bite, but the manifestations of power are different in each version, which I think speaks volumes. And I think that's more of a tribute to the writers, to to Straczynski, Straczynski, Straczynski. I can't remember his name, or Bendis. These guys that, or Dan Slott. These guys that really wrote spider-man's stories well in their time with him and that again i think is brought on the big screen there's some great meta moments that you mentioned one of the other ones i love is with garfield even afterwards when they're trying to define who's going to be one two and three and he says yeah I guess <laughs> because because that's how a lot of people feel like okay if you're going to rank the spider-man he's probably coming in
1: third. Number one in my
0: heart, buddy. I, no, you're you're preaching to the choir here. You're, you're <laughs> preaching to the youth pastor here. That it's going to be Garfield for us. But I thought yes. Watts did a fantastic job of saying, "Look, let's just let's just call it what it is. Yeah, yeah. Acknowledge what it is, and and really play off that. So I I think that it's uh, it's so much fun to see that, and it's nice to see that these actors are enjoying what they do. I'm, and I'm not talking about just the Spider-Man. I'm talking about all of these characters that have called oh, Willem Dafoe
1: picked it so, up like a, a whole nother notch. Like a champ, like the, a champ. Yeah, it, he's terrifying and he's and empathized like mm-hmm. incredibly hard with him as Norman at the end, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, seeing seeing him at feast, I thought was really great. Yeah. <laughs> stealing candy. You really get to
1: see the difference. That's the thing. You get to see two distinct characters. And that's what you have to have in a character like that.
0: Who's well, got which, these yeah, and you don't. So you see him as Norman Osborne who wants to be known as Dr. Osborne. Like he has lost all respect from everybody. And seeing him in the homeless garb really does emphasize that, that he has nothing. He's not even, he's not known in this universe, Aaron. Who's Dr. Osborne? That's not somebody being like mean. That's somebody being real and saying, I don't know. There is no Dr. Osborne that exists. So him and and all of the other returning actors, I thought, did really well to just lean right into their characters and even advance them, as you mentioned, enough to push the story forward to make more sense. They're not just retreading over old character flaws, that they're really enhanced
1: versions of those character flaws that find that redemption something i'm a scientist myself you know um the uh oh, you mentioned miles i i about lost my sh- stuff when electro says at the end he's like oh you know i just i thought you were gonna be black we were both from queens and he's like well it gotta be a black spider-man out there somewhere and i was like i held my breath because i was like are we gonna introduce miles like if are are you gonna because if i don't even i don't know how i could have handled it but like i think the beauty of what marvel does is they slow play things and they plant seeds so what that line did and what will happen is two three years down the road whenever it happens maybe it's the next spider-man trilogy and that's the whole purpose of that trilogy is the peter parker grounded series with miles coming into play that would be my guess is we point back to this line and we go that's when they said it that's when they acknowledged that there's probably a black spider-man out there somewhere right and i just i loved that little detail especially knowing that we already know miles exists in this universe because donald Clover is his uncle aaron and he's been referenced in homecoming that was really really cool and i did want to ask you what you think about where we go from here so when i left The movie the first time and when we talked about it on ff plus i said this i said that my favorite part of the whole movie because i was a little bit kind of underwhelmed at the time was the ending because of where it leaves us because it's the iconic suit the original colors it is not stark enhanced with tech it is finally sewn in a budget empty rundown apartment where rent's due on the first of each month and my goodness if they could get that same guy back to be the landlord that would be amazing and he finally is the spider-man that we always compared him to in what toby was and to a lot big extent, kind of what andrew was more modeled after but the traditional spider-man grounded story no one knows who he is he is just out swinging in New York in the snow. And by the way, since you don't watch it yet, he swings right by. I want to say, I don't know if it's it's Rockefeller Center or whatever yeah, it's, it's called. Center. That plays into the finale next Wednesday of Hawkeye in a big way. That is where it's going down. So I swear if he swings by there in the finale of Hawkeye, I'm going to lose my crap. But like just that, again, intertextuality, the way things are slowly pieced together like this is happening in the same universe at the same time in the same place we know matt murdoch's there we know another character's there because a hawkeye it's really cool but i just love where he's set up no one knows who he is he's gonna go out and be the grounded everyday spider-man he's not part of the avengers anymore they don't know about him or they're not recruiting him because that was a tony stark thing i love it i love 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 it and it made me. T- appreciate the tom holland trilogy as a whole more because this is where we ended up and i don't know how to express why that is necessarily but it it made me not feel like i was missing out on something it made me understand that it's okay to have it be different and it still gave me a little bit of a excitement factor over maybe getting to see holland do the thing that i kind of still wanted to see him do anyway well,
0: I think part of it is that it's a backwards approach to an origin story where you have someone who starts out alone discovering his powers. Eventually, more people discover it, and then he would eventually team up. Now, that's not the origin story of Spider Man per se because he's always on his own until he meets up with the Avengers in the MCU. But in this case, it's actually backwards. He comes out as a team member. And ends up alone. This is really the one of the bigger surprises for me when I left the theater is I felt that sense of isolation from him. Like the idea that he cannot and does not really have a friend. He doesn't have any anchor at all. And so that jumping from the window onto, to Rockefeller Center It didn't feel sad, but it felt very, I don't know, just isolated. I think what did it for me was the moment that he comes up to Aunt May's grave and we see Happy. And I'm like, oh yeah, they're going to share a moment together. And Happy goes, did you know her? I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't, that's right. Happy doesn't know him. I must've been stupid because duh, that's just what happened. Nobody knows Spider-Man or Peter Parker is Spider-Man. But when Happy says that, I'm like, wow, nobody knows him. Like nobody. And the idea of being that alone and having that kind of responsibility, that put a huge weight. I felt that weight. Like I had a huge amount of empathy for him and it, it didn't leave me pessimistic. It didn't leave me sad. It just left me like realistically going, man. That is a huge burden to carry. The fact that you don't have anyone that you can rely on, and that, yes, ultimately, I think he's going to get MJ back. I think he and Ned are going to reconnect. That amulet or that that pendant around Black her neck, Dahlia necklace. Black D- and
1: she still. Yeah. Something's
0: going to happen with that. I think it's it's magic. I think there's there's magic with it that she's going to somehow remember him. I I mean that to leave it at that and never resolve it I think is would be a huge misstep because we love him and MJ together he needs MJ unless Gwen Stacy shows up which would just be weird but anyway Uh, wouldn't that be crazy she's
1: she's alive she's in this universe right you would think so we we haven't heard her yet we don't know I know but like she she, I mean she's not
0: dead she She's not dead, but she may not even exist. That's the thing. Again, that's true. Oscorp does not different. exist in this oh, universe, so, right. doesn't either. so there's no one Osborne does neither. Remember when Ned, work. Well, yeah. Do you remember when Ned asked? He said, "I wonder if there's another <laughs> version of me."
1: Be- yeah. So he
0: asked that's that true. question as if no, there's not a Ned that we know of in Toby Verse or in Garfield mm. Verse. So interesting. I, I don't. I don't know. Uh, but I agree with you. That ending was really, really solid, and I love his suit. I've always, always loved the less, the less techy suit, yeah. because it has to be him. It has to be him. Even, even Stark's tech suit that was like spandex, as opposed to his, uh, was the Iron Spider suit. I didn't like. I don't like the Iron Spider suit at all. But the, uh, but the plain sewing kit made, friendly neighborhood Spider Man suit. The, the more vibrant blue and red is just amazing. It's so good.
1: Yeah, I like them all. I love the Iron Spider in the game specifically. I That's freaking so much fun to play with. But it, <laughs> it works, I think, when he is with the Avengers because he, the threats he's fighting feel like maybe they warrant... not global.
0: They're bigger. They're some the, intergalactic. Some of
1: these tech... <laughs> I want to fight an alien. I, I don't even want to fight an alien. I just fought a...
0: <laughs> a Russian in a rhino suit. I just fought a Russian in a rhinoceros suit.
1: So good. So good. <laughs> I was dying. Garfield. Anyway, (laughs) anyway, well, I wanted to briefly end this, I guess here. I wanted to mention this whole thing about nostalgia and we've kind of talked through it some, but one hand, you're going to have people just saying, this is nothing but fan service. I came out of it feeling kind of frustrated and feeling like it was like that. And the second time around didn't feel any of it at all and felt it was just all brilliantly put together in a way that was unique but this is going to keep happening is what it seems like we are rebooting everything they're turning Goonies into a series of some kind they're doing something with that you know and that reaction you just gave me that oh no this is the interesting thing for 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 every Goonies there's probably at least a two or three fails for every good one we have a rise of the Skywalker that doesn't work well bringing somebody back you know we have a Ghostbusters afterlife that maybe falls in the middle but probably this part of it leans towards the negative aspects of that film but then we have a cobra kai or we have this movie that seemed to do it in a way that works we have a fast and furious that doesn't work very well when you're retconning things and such but what is it that's the difference like I don't think it's gonna change. So I don't even think there's any point in discussing that because I feel like money speaks and this type of quote fan service is what brings people out and is drawing people's big bucks over and their attention over and over and over because you are tapping into that thing that they already love versus trying to sell them on loving something new more so than anything. But why is it that this is able to succeed and not feel schlocky like a cash grab where something like, I don't know, I don't want to be specific because everybody has different experiences, but widely other popular types of versions of this stuff has not worked as well. Do you have any answer for that? Do you you have any idea? Not answer, but what are your thoughts? Yeah,
0: well, I was talking with Andrew Dice over at Screen Rant about this earlier last week. And you guys are going to get the full conversation of what we're talking about. But one of the things that we hit on was about this idea of familiarity and how appealing that is. It's like a warm blanket to, to use a, a cheesy metaphor, because you are connecting with something that you don't have to feel like you have to learn something new. It's You almost feel like when you replay Spider-Man, you and I were talking about this, the idea of... You want to replay the Spider-Man game, but you know what happens. You know exactly what happens. You know how to beat the enemies. You're going to probably play it on the, its the lowest difficulty level. Why? Because you enjoy the story. Why are you not potentially playing something different? Like there's an Iron Man game out there. Why are you, What is it about? You're asking the same question. What is it about wanting to go back and experience this again? It's because you love the character. It's because you love the world that he lives in. It's because the story more than anything else this is this is what i was getting at the story is told really well so when we look at no way home you could look at this as a cash grab for the only reasons that it would be which is oh we got old characters that we're bringing back and people are like yeah this is awesome but we leave the movie not thinking that the story was just blah the story got progressed and it wasn't because of a post credit scene. It wasn't because of one line that set up a new movie. It was because the entire movie felt like it was a forward-pushing narrative. That it wasn't just, let's throw all this crap onto the screen. Let's bring back Tommy McGuire. Let's bring back Andrew Garfield. And let's put a bunch of great lines in their mouth so that people can laugh. That absolutely pushes it. But when you take something like The Rise of Skywalker or anything in the Star Wars universe where you start bringing back characters, if they don't have purpose and they're not pushing a story along, to me, that's where I think things start to fail. When you're starting to reach back into things that are not just familiar, but retreads. So when your stories are not retreads, but really using the things that are familiar to anchor into something new, like Cobra Kai, for instance. You look at that series that's in its fourth season as of this New Year's Eve. The reason why is because you have a touch of nostalgia that pushes a story forward. So you'll take elements from Karate Kid 1, 2, and 3 to anchor in ideas or start scenes or start themes. And then from there, it carries a narrative forward. We're not just looking at Daniel and Johnny's rivalry. We're looking at Other things that those things are triggering, or that those things have triggered. And I think in the case of Spider Man, in this particular entry, that's exactly what we got. We got meaningful cameos, meaningful entries of these old characters that push the story forward, where we now can appreciate two things at once. We can appreciate a love letter to the Spider Verse that existed before us with Sam Raimi and Mark Webb but we can also appreciate that this movie has now pushed the MCU a step further in its evolution as a universe. And I'll tell you straight up, I couldn't care less about the next Dr. Strange movie. I was like, okay, cool, whatever. Because I have my own issues with this whole idea of like, you need to watch all these 50 things to get every little reference to really appreciate it. That's why I pregame six, seven movies before watching this because I can appreciate that, but I'm not going to go back and watch the first Iron Man all the way up through Shane Chi and watch all the post-credit scenes just so I can appreciate three more references in the next Dr. Strange movie. So in a roundabout way, I would think that the successful movies that have nostalgic references in them, that have nostalgic pieces they're successful because they don't lean on those things to drive their story. Their story feels fresh. It feels forward thinking. It feels like it's doing something important, but not at the expense of just cramming us full of feel goods.
1: Yeah, that's well said. I don't know that I can add much to that. I think it's also just something that's very different for each person. I mean, my goodness, it was different for me between two viewings of a movie three days apart. So yeah, how fickle can these things be, right? What works for me and what I want out of my quote fan service, what you want out of your quote fan service. And I use that word not negatively. I use it as almost a positive, right? Like that's right. what it is. We are serving fans' desire for certain stories to be told. And it just gets associated with bringing characters back in so many ways and storylines.
0: Well, and I'll say this I think it's also. Dependent on the creators, the directors, the writers, and how much they respect those characters. Because as we saw, Watts really cared about these other two universes that existed before he came along. It's played out on the big screen. You have others that I think could be, you could make an argument that Michael Bay basically took a franchise like the Transformers and obliterated it for the sake of being a cash grab to play off of, oh, everybody loves Transformers from the 80s. Let's go ahead and make a movie like this. I think, my opinion, I don't know that Michael Bay respected the property enough to really feel like, let's give the fans what they deserve. Not what we think they deserve, but what they deserve. Now, you contrast that to Bumblebee, which I think is a quiet way of giving a a fan base what they need. Or what they want but not at the expense of these characters they're not exploited in other words that they are they're cared for and they're used in ways that don't make them feel like they're just cheap props in a movie that's meant to get more butts in the seats and essentially get more money in a director's pocket
1: yeah no absolutely right i mean i i just can't stop thinking about how Similar, this is to Ghostbusters Afterlife, where you're bringing back characters and you're bringing back a storyline and you're essentially somewhat repeating that storyline, as in the people are fighting the same thing that they had fought before, but through a slightly different lens, slightly different play, slightly different way. You know, some other new characters are involved in that fight now. But the way it's done is just so. Special to me because it's connected. It's in the writing. It's in the writing, and and I can't specifically say that it's one at one spe- one thing that is the wrong thing. It's just it's a whole tone, and it's a way of taking that material and making it fresh. It's like you're bringing it back, but you're also making it fresh in a way that the result of it, I think, is what makes it so different for me. What's different for me is that we're saving the villains. We're not just fighting the villains again. If we, again, I think I said that earlier, but if we were just fighting the villains again, to me, this would be Rise of the Skywalker. It would be Ghostbusters Afterlife. We would be doing the same thing we already did. But because you put that twist and we're handling the same thing we did once before in a different way, it becomes fresh and new and interesting and able to get connection from me on a different level. But yeah i think it is very very subjective (laughs) and there is no definitive like this is good fan service this is bad fan service way of doing it and like you just said with transformers i love the original transformers i thought the direction we were going in the original movie was great i think michael bay saw the amount of success and the box office numbers that came from it and was empowered to do the worst of bay and do those things more and less of the things that I loved about the first Transformers movie. And it's not necessarily his fault, that's his style. We wanna blame somebody, let's blame the studio who gave him the money and said, here, make this movie, right? But how do you combat that? When people go out and they pay hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to see something multiple times over and over and over, or a billion dollars, guess what? The people are saying they want it. All they're doing is giving it to us. And I don't know what to say about that. If I don't want it, then it's just on me. Like you just said, it's just on you. Sometimes you just gotta skip things. I think people need to, if anything, maybe get to a place where they're more okay with that. And they're more accepting of, it's okay for me to love this thing that is fan service to me and not love this other thing that is fan service to you. And neither of us is wrong. (laughs) It's okay. You know, I don't have to watch every single episode of Cobra Kai when it drops like i know you love it i know it's your thing and i'm happy for you and that's good enough but it's an interesting new eve, yeah. topic yeah. New for sure new year's eve yeah. what
0: new year's eve is that's what i'm doing is i'm watching cobra cow with my wife we're gonna ring in the new year with, with johnny and daniel in the game because i yeah, love it's, it it's great hope toby mcguire shows up <laughs> he probably will and andrew garfield they're gonna show up in everything right all right well that's gonna do it for this week we hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as we have As always, you know where to go to keep the conversation going. Next week, we are going to give you our post-Christmas episode in the form of The Green Knight. I think it made it to theaters again on December 10th. So if you didn't get a chance to see it then, it's streaming anywhere and everywhere that you can rent things. I guess the major places like Vudu and Amazon and whatnot. Give yourself a chance to watch it. It's going to be a fantastic conversation. Aaron, I know this is one of your top movies of the year. So I'm looking forward to that discussion. In the meantime, thank you so much for this great conversation. As always, we'll talk soon.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also
0: invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way.
1: If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat.
0: And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you.
1: Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive
0: and keep feeling filled.